Uh, well, my name's Peter Mutubazi Habiadamana. It, it's a sentence. Uh, it's a full mouth. Uh, I was on a plane coming uh, from Uganda yesterday, and I was sitting next to someone and said, hey, you have a different accent. Where are you from? I said, Uganda. And then I asked him, do you know where Uganda is? And then he said, I don't know. Could you tell me? And then I said, well, it's, uh, it's in northern Canada. And, uh, <laughs> and this person said, oh, cool. I said, it's not cool, you know. It's Africa, so I come from Africa. Uh, my dad is from Rwanda, and my mom is from Uganda, so I'm born and raised uh, in, in Uganda. And why my name is very difficult, it's a sentence, basically. You know, uh, in Africa, you're given the name by the condition in how you are born. So when I was born, uh, or during my time, for every 100 children that were born, 50 would die before the age of two. So most moms don't want to be attached to the children because it's not that they don't love them, but they really are not sure if that child will survive. So they don't want to get attached by the name. So they wait until when they're two years old, and then they will give them a name. So when I got to, my mom said, well, he's a produce or he's a gift given to us by God. So my name, that's why it's direct translation, produce given to us by God. That's what it means. So that's how I got my name. Well, I'm really delighted to be here with you. I am jet-lagged. I just flew in from Uganda, uh, and I travel 90% of my time, so uh, I've been on the road and haven't quite slept well. So today, if I say anything rude, I told the previous service that you can throw your iPhone 5, not 4, but 5, <laughs> at me, and then I would take it with me back to Africa. <laughs> I promise. I also uh, speak several languages, so English is my fourth language, so I, um, in order to find for me the right words to share with you, sometimes I have to translate in my other language to find the appropriate word for you. So if I say anything rude, please, you can also throw the different iPhone towards me, uh, and I will explain. Well, there's something that I would like to do with you that I did this weekend with the kids in Africa. I'm going to say God is good, and you say all the time, and I say all the time, and you say God is good. Only twice, okay? God is good. And all the time? And for the kids in Africa, this is what they say. They say he is good at all time, and that is his nature. And that's something I want to ask you today. You don't have to answer me, but deep down you can answer to God. Is God good to you in the midst of jobs not be well? Is God good to you? Your marriage not being the best you would want to, in the midst of that, is God good to you? You're not sure about your job, how long it's going to last. Is God good to you? For the kids that I'm about to show you, a few pictures that I saw a few days ago, to them every day, God is good at all times. Either they're not feeling well, either malaria is knocking on their door, or HIV has taken mom and dad. They still wake up in the morning on Sunday and come and pray and say, he is good at all times. That nothing around me that should shake that, that he's truly good at all times. And so today, I'm really delighted to share on behalf of the children all over the world to truly tell the story of what you are doing to the church all over the world and more especially to the children. And so we really love you, and we know 
the great difference you're making alongside the children and alongside the local church where I come from, that they won't be able to do what they do. Haven't you said, we love you. We've never been where you come from, but we truly trust and want to make a difference among your children, among your church. And so today, I'm just here to thank you. And I'm here to tell my story of how God is changing lives through you and how God changed my life through an individual, a family that i never seen before, but for some reason thought I was worthy putting a little effort and making a difference in my life. And that's what your church are doing, and that's what I'm here to share with you. I have a few pictures that I want to picture, uh, uh, paint a picture about Africa. So as you hear to my story that you have a few pictures of what truly looks like, means, or the little different lifestyle that I had when I was little. Maybe I should do the same as you. There you go, it worked. Uh, those are compassion children, they're in school, and that school uniform, you can see only three or four have uh, a pair of shoes. So most children, they walk three to five miles just to go to school, uh, and they're okay going without a shoe, and they're okay, comfortable, just going to find that little opportunity to go to school. Next slide. And most children in Africa, you know, at the age of four or five, they're able to take care of their siblings. So they grow really quickly. So at seven-year-old, it would be usually equate to a 15-year-old here. And then a 12-year-old here, a 12-year-old 12, 12 little girl or boy in Africa is literally a 22-year-old American. So they grow so quickly because there's no time to truly be a child. So they're taking care of their little ones on Sunday service. Next slide. You know, most children, just like me when I was little, we went to, you know, fetch water and as well as bring produce or food, you know, three to five miles away. So, you know, that's about a, maybe a nine-year-old kid, you know, just with mom and dad going to look for food or taking food to a grocery store to sell so they can make a little money uh, to just buy salt most of the time. Just salt, not sugar, but salt. The next slide. Uh, I just went with the church, and that's Pastor Ryan, with two little uh, boy and a girl who are HIV positive, and that's their grandmother who's 70, you know, year old, and she's been left to take care uh, of those little ones because there's no one to take care of them. Mom and dad died last year. And that's the picture that I want you to think when you think of my story, when you think of the kids in Africa, think of the pictures that you just saw here, and that was me as a little boy. And today, I truly want to share with you. I work for Compassion International, I get to travel all over the world, and my job is truly to say and to thank uh, those who are sponsoring that you are making a difference, that it worked for me, and it truly worked for those that you're taking care of. In the midst of, my, of HIV, in the midst of malaria, in the midst of having no food, that you are truly standing in those gaps for our families and for our churches to say we know it's difficult, but you are truly, truly changing lives. Not one, not two, but you as a church are changing hundreds and hundreds of kids all over the world. And that's what I'm here to truly thank you and tell you my story. As a little boy growing up, as you saw in the pictures there, my life was miserable in every shape or form. As I've shared with you my name, how it came about. But also, very early, I got to know that our family was so poor that mom could never afford one meal a day for us. We had a meal every other day. And so for me, 
The only meal I had was beans and potato, Monday to Monday, beginning of the year to the end of the year. We had two meals a year that were different. Christmas, we had chicken. And Easter, we had beef. So for me, I truly grew up knowing Christmas was not about the bath of Jesus. It was about chicken. <laughs> As a little boy, it was the only time we had chicken and possibly rice if they were Irish potatoes. And so that's what my mom could afford. And as a little boy, men ate first, women second, and children ate last. I come from a culture where children are still third-class citizens. So even that soup of chicken that got to me, I truly loved it because it was the only time I had a different meal. And then Easter, I come from a Roman Catholic family. At the end of Lent, that's when I would have beef. And those are the two days in a year that I ought to have a different meal. For the kids that are among us today on Sunday, you don't have to tell me the number, but how many of you have two meals, three meals at least a day? One of them. Could you raise your hand somewhere? Three meals a day. Most of you. I was asking the little ones, but I guess you sent them away. <laughs> that we can have a meal. And today I want to rebuke you for the young ones that are here, college students and those who are among us. I want to ask you, how many times do you look at mom and dad and say, Thank you for the meal that he's given us, that you have bought for us. You know why I'm doing so? Because where I come from, they don't have a choice when it comes to meal. What you're given is what you can have. But for us here, for the little ones, how often do we thank mom and dad for what they have given us? How many times? And if you could do for me today, if you could go home today, just today, and look to dad and mom and say, Mom, thank you that you get to feed me every day. For me, I didn't have that. One meal every other day. I had my first pair of shoes when I was 16 years old. Never had one. I had a Coca-Cola at 14, which I didn't like, because when they gave me the bottle, I drank, and then it went through my nose. <laughs> and I said, I will never touch this drink again. <laughs> and so that's the picture of the most children you sponsor. And that was my life when I was a little boy. At the age of four, I began to realize that not only were we poor, but also I had the most abusive father you could think of in every shape, form of all you could think of. Not just to me, but to my mom as well. So as a little boy, five, four, four years old, there was no food, poverty is all you knew, and then you had one person who should protect you as your worst enemy. So for me, if someone told me, hey, you'll be five years that to me seemed like a lie, that I would never make it to five years old. Poverty on one side, abuse on the other. But also, to be honest, I didn't want to live anymore. To me, I felt it was so horrible, especially from my dad, that for me, I better be off going, dying now than waiting for another day of abuse, for another day of no food, for another day of not knowing if there will be mourning. At the age of eight, I got an opportunity to go to school. Not to be a teacher, not to be a doctor. There's no one educated my family. But I went to school because my mom wanted me to learn how to spell my name. And I went there, and I loved it so much. I'm going to ask another question. How many of the kids here who's in school that gets to ride a bus? Anyone? There's one. How many of you that get to be driven at school? Most of you, right? Again, I want to say, you go back home, 
thank mom and dad and thank your country that you have those opportunities that most of the world doesn't have. And I'm not trying to rebuke you, but just to remind you of a few grateful things that we ought to do every day of our life that most people don't have. And I went to school at eight just to learn how to spell my name. And I loved it so much. Here's why I loved it. So I could be away from abuse from my dad for eight hours. So to me, school was safe heaven, a place that I could be a little kid for just eight hours. Well, that got tough. At the age of 11, I thought, well, I can't take this abuse anymore. So I decided, never been 10 miles away, I decided to go down the bus station and I asked the lady, hey, which bus goes the farthest? And the lady said, that one. And why I asked? Because I wanted to run away from my family, especially from my dad. And so I got on that bus, never been 10 miles away from my village, and I went 500 kilometers away from my village. That ride was the best ride in the world. The every hour that passed by, I knew my dad would not find me. Every hour that passed by, that I didn't have to hear, there was abuse, the worst you could think of as a little boy. I didn't know where I was going, but I was determined to go as far as I could. And I ended up in Kampala. That's the only capital city in Uganda. And I had one choice, but that one choice was to be a street kid who lived on stealing, cleaning, doing anything that could be used as a street boy. Back in Africa, we don't start on the roadside and say, hey, can you, have, can you give me 50 cents like we do here? Well, most people don't make a dollar a day. You can't beg, but you work as a street kid. You're used, but also you find a way to make a living. And my living was to make food or to, make, to find something to eat. And that became my life. Back in Africa, women always sell stuff alongside the road. So they always needed labor, especially as street kid. They used you, so you always used them as well. So if I carry a bunch of banana, you know, I've given you cheap labor, free labor. So while I'm carrying them, I take two, put them behind, and I'm good to go. So I've helped you, and you've helped me. And that became my life. But also my mom taught me that if you always have favor towards people, they will have favor towards you. And so some, especially women, they always gave us something to eat. And I had been on the street for about three and a half, four years. And I helped a family. They gave me something to eat, just like any other family does. So then once, twice. The fourth time I kind of figured out, wait a minute, these people come Tuesday, uh, Saturday at 10 and they always buy this, this, this. So I figured out every Saturday I would have a sure deal for a meal. I don't have to work hard. And so every time I always saw this farm and they always gave me something to eat. Six, eight months into it, they said, hey, what's your name? I said, my name is Peter. And they said, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would you go to school? And I said, wait a minute. My own father would rather almost kill me. You, you want to take me to school? You want to help me? Really? So for me, I thought they were mocking me. I thought they were just crazy. I mean, who does that to a street kid? As a street kid, I was nobody, useless, garbage, anything you could think of. You want to take me to school? Who are you? But I didn't trust them. And they kept coming and they kept asking me. But also, I found a way of getting food. So this is what I figured out. If I can always tell them what they want to hear, I get food. So every time I saw them, I said, hey, you mentioned school. Could you help me? 
But really what I was saying, I said, just give me food. And that's what they gave me. And so one day they said, hey, could you go take a shower? We would like to take you to school. And I said, wait a minute, I'm a street kid. How do you take a shower? How do I take a shower? So to me, I thought they were mocking me again. I said, you know I'm a street kid. The next time they came back, they said, go clean up. I said, okay, now that I understand. And I went to the sewage canal that runs through the city, dumped myself, and came back. And they said, we will take you to school, but we have two conditions. One, you go to boarding school. When I had boarding school, it was like saying, you go to a five-star hotel. <laughs> and you have to attend a program at a local church. Well, I entered that car. They opened every window, cranked every air there is. For the first time, I didn't know I smelled that bad. But they took me in and took me to school. And I told my street boys, I said, hey, if you don't see me in eight hours, you know who to kill next time they come to the city. <laughs> and you may ask yourself, how do you live on the street for almost five years and somehow go to boarding school overnight? You know? Here's what changed for me. I'd grown from a family where I was nobody. I'd grown from a family where I was useless. I'd grown from a family where you went to fetch water three miles away and came back and dad said, you can't have food. I'd grown from a family where I went to fetch water, firewood, did everything a child could never do. And no one ever said, thank you. But he's a stranger that met me, fifth, little, dirty, never anything you could think of at my worst. But so that there was a little worthiness of a little boy I could take to school. So for me, it's not the school that changed my life. It's that they saw that I was a human being. That nobody, nobody had ever taught me that I was a human being. That on my own father, who should protect me, never seen me as worthy putting in school. As worthy giving a little opportunity to say that you matter. But this stranger who didn't know my last name, he didn't know where I came from. With my smell, that he saw that there was a little boy he could just give an opportunity to dream. He saw a little boy that was worthy teaching the Bible. He saw a little boy that he could just, just believe in for a week, for a day. That's what changed me. That's what changed my life. It wasn't the school. It was for the first time that someone saw that I was a human being. And for me, I'm speaking to a church that is doing that every day to the kids you sponsor. I know you've never met one of them, most of you. But somehow you're saying, no matter where you come from, no matter what challenges you go through, you matter to us. For the little girls who are seen as second-class citizen, third-class citizen, where we come from, that you are saying, no, to us, you are first. We love you as much as we love to our kids. We'll give the little best we can 
to see you be considered as a human being. That's what your church is all about. And that's what I love about Trisha and Troy. For they believe in those that most of the world has forgotten. He put him in school. And then one day he said, I have to take you to the church because that was condition too, that you have to belong to a, a something that we want to do for you. And so he put me in a boarding school, but also he took me to the church. And I remember the first day at church, I came to find out that this man was the head of Compassion International, but also that I was going to be part of that program. The pastor will come to me in and he said, hey, you go play soccer with other boys. To me, every time my dad said anything positive, it came with punishment. So I said, no, I'm not going. And he came back and said, hey, I asked you to go play soccer. Why didn't you go? I said, I know you want to punish me, so why don't you do it now? And to this day, I do recall the words he said. He said, Peter, you have a potential that God has given you. And it's our job to see that potential fulfilled. And for me, for you as a church, that's what you're doing to those little kids you sponsor, that you see a potential in them, just like my pastor said. And you're there to just say, God will fulfill whatever your dreams are. And that, too, changed my life. Not only did they pick me off the street and put me in boarding school, but put me alongside the local, ch a local church that truly shepherded me and helped me to grow and hear the gospel for the first time. Well, I didn't become a Christian right away. It took me a few years to do so. And here's the reason. For me, I had the gospel. I had the, the word of God. For he says, forgive even those who've longed against you. So for me, I have hatred towards my dad. That for me, that just seemed unfair. How do I just forgive this guy? Here's what I wanted to do. I thought, now I'm a little bit older, so I'm going to go home, get my dad, break his leg, <laughs> do something, you know, maybe after saying, now, dad, I forgive you. Well, I'm sure you're laughing because you felt so, I'm sure, as well. But also, my dad was religious. He went to church every Sunday, and I could never understand, how can you go to church on Sunday, be holy, but be an animal Monday to Saturday? And so one day, my sponsor came to me and said, hey, this genocide in Rwanda, I want you to go rescue the children. In Rwanda, that's where my dad comes from. So all my family had been killed during the genocide. And so I went to rescue the children, and my first day in Rwanda, I saw more than 3,000 dead bodies. And it's hard to see them left, right, and think you're going to make it for the next minute. So me and the driver, we knew we were going to be killed as well. And so we stopped, and I said, hey, I really want to go to heaven, and I want to know Christ my Lord and Savior now. He said, wait a minute, you work for compassion. You must be a believer. I said, no, I look like one, I act like one, but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. And so we prayed and waited for death to show up. And during the time while we were waiting, I knew truly, for me, I wanted to go home and break my leg. I wanted to go home and do something to my dad. But I also looked at my own self. I said, but God did not break my leg in order to forgive me. But he did it to the person he loved, his son, to do that for me. I don't know you guys here. I don't know what you've come from. I don't know what you've gone through. But holding on things that you have no control of or you can never change, will not help you. I'm from Rwanda. Eight, 800,000 people were killed in eight weeks. If we did not learn how to forgive and let it go, we would not be able to survive. 
And I hope that's for you here, that you remember that. And I went back and I wiped for compassion because that's some promise I made when I said, Lord, could you take me back to to Uganda? And if you do so, I'll give hope to those that are hopeless. I'll share my story and tell these kids that what you did for me, you could do that for them. And that's truly been my story. And my sponsor has told me the life of Joseph. He says, Joseph was sold by his own family, but he did the best wherever he went, despite of where he came from. And in Genesis 50, you remember, he says, you know, uh, what they meant for evil, what they meant for evil, God meant it for good. That I hope is a story for you, and that's been for me as well. That what my dad did, that's between him and the Lord, but that's my job to forgive him and to love him as my dad. I'm not looking for a father, but him as a man that God truly put in my life is the best that I can do. And I hope that's for you as well. My mom became a believer as well. Not because I went back and I said, you need to know Christ the Lord and Savior, but for him he said, how can someone love my child as their own? What compel them to do? And that's what you're doing as sponsors. You're truly, truly, truly showing cultures, homes, families to love their little ones for the love that you're showing to them. And that's how my mom became a believer. She said, I'll go to church, he goes. Why? Because of the kindness he'd done to me. My little siblings as well, they have all gone through university and they're teachers now. Not because they're smart, but they said, well, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. Five years ago, I went to my dad. He comes home at six and seven. He used to come at four, three. You know, now he comes home at seven. And I wanted to say, why do you come home at seven or at three? What happened in between? He calls my sponsor, my dad. He said, your dad has taught me what a father ought to be. And you as a church, that's what you're showing our people. What a father, what caring means, what love means. I just came from Uganda, and there was one family that became a believer while we were there. And they're Muslim, so we wanted to know why they accept Christ as the Lord and Savior. And they said, look, when we go to the mosque, they say Americans, Americans are bad. But yet, my child, if they need food, it's the American that provides. When they go to school, it's the American that pays for their tuition. When they're sick, the American pays. So for me, I, I could see where the truth is. And they said, I want to do, I want to look for that truth. And that's what you're doing as a sponsor, changing the lives, changing the beliefs. Not by saying, by the acts you're doing, like my sponsor did. There were more than 200 kids on the streets. But he didn't say, there's 200 kids, what can I do? He said, just one. And that one happened to be me. I won't be here. I've lost 65 members of my family of HIV. I'm not different than them but because he put me alongside a man that trusted the Lord, a man that told me what to value and principles of my Christian walk that has protected me from that. Not that I'm special from them, but because I've been exposed to God's word. And that's what you're doing to the kids all over the world. That's what you're doing to the local churches that are absolutely looking after them. That you matter that you're special, that you are unique, 
it's been tough for me living in both worlds, you know. I, come, I just came from Uganda, and I came here, and I ordered anything I would want. And sometimes I struggle with that. When you've been in a place where people are dying for not having beans, and coming to a country where things are thrown everywhere, and sometimes in the midst of that I say, God, do you truly love us the same? Do you truly love us the same? And for me, what has encouraged me or what has really held me, and one of the chapters in the Bible, Psalm 139, you know, we know David had 300 wives. How many of you have two wives? None of you. Where I come from, they can do whatever. But what I'm trying to say, this is the man that was given all the reason on the planet. He had everything to be blessed, anything to brag about. But in Psalm 139, he doesn't really tell us what he had, but he tells us what he's grateful about. Oh, his knowledge of God was in how he was created. For he says that you know everything about me. When I stretch, when I stand, you know everything about me. And you know it really well. That I know a child, a family in Africa gets to sleep as much as you slept today. You go to walk as much as they walked. That we both are created in God's image. And verse 14 he says, For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That I know he made us the same way. Yes, you have, but you can have and not know him. Yes, you don't have, but you might not have and not know him. So we are both lost without or with. But the one common thing we have is what he's taught us. Is what he's shown us. And David is saying, I cannot attain, I cannot understand how much you love me. That I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't matter where I am, and that has been comfort for me. But comfort of your generosity as well. That you've given, you've loved us to the kids you don't know. That you get to write to them and say, we love you and we are praying for you. And most time, that's all they need. And as a church... We want to thank you. Where there's no food, you've provided for us. Where there's no clothes, you've closed that. Where there's no faith, you brought that faith back to us. Where there's no church, you've connected to church. Where there's no love, you've shown us love. That's what my sponsor has done for me. And you might be sitting here saying, I mean, can I do enough? You've already done enough. And we thank you. I wish I could bring all the kids you sponsor and say, so they are able to tell you face to face, thank you, that you could see worthiness that nobody saw in me. Thank you that you could remember that I exist. And that's what my sponsor did, that he taught me what nobody taught me, that he gave me what nobody gave me. But he also has taught me forgiveness, reconciliation, and letting go of what happened when I was little. And I don't know if you have any of that, but for me, it's been a victory. I can't say it's been easy, but it's been victory to know that God loves me despite that my dad was not there. That God loves me despite there was no food there. That God loves me despite the HIV has taken most of my family. That above all, he loves me as an individual. And I hope he does for you, and I hope you know that well. For me, the one verse that I also want to share with you that has really been helpful for me, Luke 12, 48, 
Too much is given, much is required. He's given me faith. How can I love him? People say, Peter, why do you have to travel 90% of the time? I say, I'm sitting on a plane. It has a cushion, it has a little blanket, and I can get food. How can I complain? <laughs> For most kids who didn't have that plain food that I got to have. That you've loved us. I cannot thank, thank you enough. To Troy and Trisha. We love you so much for just believing in us. And as a church, we love you for having faith and giving gas hope where there's no hope. And thank you, and thank you, and thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for you lovers, Lord. In many times, we have no words to bring. We have no much to bring to you. But truly, truly, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, for my church here, I want to thank them for believing in us, for the nation they leave us, for the great things they've given us. Lord, for their pastor who said, I don't know them, but I want to go see them. For, for his wife, uh, Tricia, Lord, we pray for her, that you be with her in this most difficult time, Lord, that you, you protect all our family. And many and many in this church, Lord, we thank you that you could give us food we don't deserve, that you could give us a morning that we don't deserve. We know many did not make it this morning, but for us, we're here today. And so, Lord, help us to love you and help us to know and to go home and to go to our communities as we cherish you and as we tell the good works that you've done in us and the testimony that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.